The American Battlefield Trust preserves America's hallowed battlegrounds and educates the public about what happened there and why it matters. If you would like to help save these important pieces of history, please log on to battlefields.org. Shepherd University's George Tyler Moore Center for the Study of the Civil War and Department of History invite undergraduate students from across the country to come and spend a semester at their historic crossroads in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Their semester-long Civil War experience will immerse a select group of undergraduate students in collaborative learning, interpretive field experiences, digital humanities projects, public history programs, and a war and society approach to military history. For more information on this program, please log on to shepherd.edu slash Civil War Semester. What's up, everybody? My name's John. I am the Tattooed Historian, and welcome to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. This one's going to be a little bit different for you. I've never done this before, and I thought about it for a little while, and I said, you know what? This was a great presentation. A lot of people showed up. I think you would enjoy hearing it if you weren't able to be there or if you didn't see the live stream on my Facebook page. So this week, what I did was I pulled the audio from one of my... uh, installments of the Tattooed Historian Presents, which is live at the Gary Owen Irish Pub every month. I pulled the audio from one that was uh, the biggest one yet, which was Dr. Peter Carmichael's presentation concerning his new book called The War for the Common Soldier, How Men Thought, Fought, and Survived in Civil War Armies. So Dr. Carmichael sat down with me for about an hour, and we had a packed house. Usually we get uh, 25, 30, sometimes 40 people upstairs at the Gary Owen to come to these presentations. They're free and open to the public. People really enjoy them. Uh, there's a chance to network and just enjoy yourself. We have full bar service and food. So it's really neat to see people come out and hear some history and talk some history. This one was a little bit different because, uh, Pete is really well known. He has a following. Um, and, this was the first installment of the Tattoo Historian Presents where we actually did a back-and-forth discussion. Before this, I had usually just done someone comes in and they give a 40-minute presentation on something, they take some questions, and that's it. But Pete wanted to do something different. He wanted to do more of a discussion type, and uh, it really worked out really well. I had a separate microphone there for questions that we could pass around, and we actually had handouts with some of the primary source documents on them which uh, the people could read over and come up with their own interpretation of that document. So you'll hear us uh, talking about his book. You'll hear us talking about primary source materials, reading primary source materials, meaning the, the materials that were written at the time. What do they tell us about what this person experienced? What do they tell us about the, the thoughts and feelings of this person? Uh, what can we get out of them? It's a very important thing to think about if you're a researcher and you're looking at documents which were written at the time of the event or shortly thereafter, this is a very important talk on that aspect because his book is filled with these primary source materials. That's what it is. And 
It's a wonderful book. Uh, it's been out for several months now. It's very hard to come by, at least it was. I think it's available now on Amazon pretty regularly. Uh, there for a while, it was a three to four week wait to get this book. Uh, but it is it is a fantastic work. I really enjoyed it. Pete has been a big supporter of my my project for a while now, and I definitely wanted to have him come out and do one of these live events uh, as a thank you and also as a way for him to introduce some of his students to what I do. So it was a win-win for everybody. Uh, people stuck around for a while afterwards and talked. It was just a really great time. So what I did was I took the live stream, uh, which I had placed up on my Facebook page. You can also find it on my YouTube page. And I took the audio out of it, stripped the audio out, and this is the finished product with that. So there are times when uh, you know, you're going to hear people ask questions from the audience or give their interpretation of a document from the audience. But I believe Pete and I go over you know, uh, the documents pretty regularly through this. So you don't have to have the document in front of you to understand what we're trying to do. You'll be able to see the larger picture and the bigger narrative about uh, primary source materials and uh, letters and such written at the time during the Civil War. So again, uh, I think this is a something new for us to try here on the podcast. But I've been seeing, uh, you know, some other uh, people in the business world pull meeting audio and make it into podcasts. So I want to try it with this because this is a historically based talk, absolutely. Uh, and I think that you know you would get something out of it and enjoy it. So uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is from one of my Tattooed Historian Presents series at the Gary Owen Irish Pub in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. This time I was speaking with Dr. Peter Carmichael about his newest book called The War for the Common Soldier, How Men Thought, Fought, and Survived in Civil War Armies. Enjoy it. Thank you all for coming out. Uh, appreciate you all coming out this evening. Uh, my name is John Heckman. I am the Tattooed Historian. And uh, first off, I want to thank the Gary Owen for hosting us again. Uh, they do a great job doing this. And I want to thank Phineas up there at the bar. Thank you, buddy, for uh, dealing with a full house tonight. Please, tr please treat him well. He deserves it. Uh, but we have a we have a great evening lined up this evening. Uh, my friend Dr. Peter Carmichael is with us, and uh, we have a lot lined up to talk about with his newest book, uh, which is the War for the Common Soldier. And uh, thanks, Pete, for for doing this. Uh, you know, this is this is something new for for you, right? Being upstairs at the Gary Owen. Yeah, I never knew there was an upstairs at the Gary Owen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I had been to the Gary Owen. Uh, I got here in 2012. And I think 2014, I became a vegetarian. Uh, there's lots of hisses sorry. in the crowd. I know. I'm sorry as well. <laughs> Those were uh, lean, lean years, so to speak. And last summer, when uh, I'm no longer a vegetarian, 
And uh, <laughs> so I came back. Welcome uh, back. I came back. The, and uh, yeah, uh, Gary Owen looked a lot bigger than what I remembered uh, oh, yeah. downstairs as well. And the food's fantastic. And, and then we hear some more hisses and boos, ready? So I don't like dark beer. I can't do Guinness. I like beer that has fruit in it. Oh. I've lost my credibility, I'm quite certain. So, uh, but I come here, and my wife, um, she likes the Irish whiskey. Don't ask me what brand she gets. I don't know. Uh, so, uh, so, yes, we're big fans of Gary Owen, and uh, happy to be here. Yeah, this is, this is great. Uh, they, they've been taking really good care of us month to month. And uh, I also want to thank the uh, Gaysburg Foundation. A couple people are here from the foundation. They've helped market uh, this event tonight. So thank you guys for doing that. Uh, members of the Recruit Program are here. Uh, you have some students here, don't you? My, my Southern History class. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> All right, who's here for extra credit? An hour and 15 of me this morning, and now more Carmichael. That's too much, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, hardship duty for them. Well, that's fantastic. It's, it's a great evening, and we got here before the winter storm. And I know you got to get down to Richmond. I'm driving to Richmond tonight. Tonight. Uh, so, so we're going to uh, work our way through uh, parts of your newest book sure. and uh, some of the primary sources that we've printed off. For, for everyone here. Hopefully a lot of people got packets. They're all gone? Okay. So we went through 50 of them. So we're up around 50 people at least. Uh, but you all, so many of you have received packets like this. There are some primary sources inside there we're going to go over. And first off, for my first question, uh, the War for the Common Soldier. You start uh, to read that and you get to about page 12. <laughs> and you stop. That's enough. And you stop. <laughs> I've had enough. And, you stop, at the, and <laughs> you stop at the end of the first complete paragraph because it says, quote, there was no common soldier in the Civil War. For the, the war for the common soldier. Pete, what? what, 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 what John, as you all know, we, have, we all have contradictions. Absolutely. And, uh, and this is a, a pretty significant one with this book. So the title was a title that was given to me by my editors. And when I say given, I mean it was forced upon me. I, I actually do like the title overall. I wanted to open the book with the first sentence. Uh, there was no common soldier in the Civil War. Uh, my editors didn't, uh, of course, accept that. So I was able to, uh, uh, to, to wiggle that comment in on page 12. I'm glad you yeah. noticed that. Um, <laughs> You know, I got that far. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the simple fact is this, is that our uh, search for a common or a representative soldier, I believe, is an elusive one. And when we try to find that one man who stands for all, uh, I think it leads to stereotyping of soldiers, and it makes them extremely one-dimensional. And what we don't see, and what I would like to believe this book conveys, is that one soldier... Um, he had many masks uh, that he wore during the, uh, his time in military service. He could be many different things, and I think that that's actually what surprised the men themselves, uh, how war, of course, forced them, compelled them um, to act uh, and to, to write and to find meaning in the war in, in ways that they could have never possibly imagined. So uh, the title is a, is a little bit misleading, I, I, I would say, uh, but again, the scholarship, the books on the common soldier, as all of you know here, the field is extraordinarily rich, and there are historians who have done impressive work 
you know, leading off, of course, would be James McPherson. <coughs> and I draw heavily from these scholars. I build upon their work. I think it's important. It's valuable. I have my students read it as well. Uh, but all that work left me somewhat unsatisfied. Unsatisfied because I felt that we weren't getting the soldier experience as it was actually lived. And when we start to think about how these men changed over the course of time, how they evolved in their thinking and their actions, and when we get away from taking a letter and extracting a few words from that letter and then generalize from that extraction, uh, when we get away from that approach, and that is the approach that typifies most of this uh, scholarship, I think we get to see a much more dynamic um, study uh, of the common soldier. And you've pulled everything from letters inside here. How, what, is your, what are your thoughts on letters? Are they conveyed for a certain audience at that time, or do you think I, that? I, I, I'm looking deep to my class right now that oh, has yeah. had, <laughs> a, absolutely, I can tell you, enough of me talking about <laughs> how we should look at letters and focus on the act of writing, which is very different from how I first approached Civil War letters. So I first approached Civil War letters by seeing them as transparent windows into the past. Get a letter, this is what the soldier wrote, this is what he saw, this is what he did, and this is how he made, made meaning of it. All those are important questions, but what they overlook is how a soldier thought, how a soldier represented or depicted his experiences. Uh, thinking about audience, thinking about how the soldier wanted to be seen or perceived by those at home, is absolutely essential if we're going to do more than just simply look at primary sources as a report from the war. So it's very different, I, I would say, approach. And we can do this in just a little bit. We'll look at some letters and we'll, we can chew on these things and, uh, and see the different approaches that historians take uh, and when they examine and explore these documents. Yeah, yeah I always thought of that with memoirs, that, you know, that was the bad place sometimes to go because they're made yeah. for an audience on never right, considered right. It with letters. But I would say even the letters are as well, right? right. The letters, these they're very, these soldiers are very self-conscious as writers. And here's one of the, I think, ironies, is that the soldiers bitterly complained that, and these are northern and southern soldiers, they complained that the people back at home didn't really understand the war, didn't really understand what they were enduring. And of course, that's a common complaint that soldiers make. Uh, but these soldiers, they often contributed to that distortion, or I should say, to the romanization of war on the home front. Because how did these soldiers want to be seen? They wanted to be perceived as bold soldier boys, going off, always facing the front, right? heroic, pure of spirit, displaying their character before the enemy. That's what they often wrote to their loved ones. And it's then these very same soldiers would be uh, irritated, to say the least, when those at home uh, didn't have in their mind a very accurate uh, view of what life was like on, on the home front. So, you know, I found uh, there was a gap, a, a fairly significant one, between soldiers and those on the home front. Now, let me be clear here. There is a problem when people <laughs> look at the soldier experience and they universalize it. This is what soldiers have always experienced throughout time, and I find that to be highly problematic. Uh, I've had veterans time and time again say to me, in fact, one very bluntly said to me after I gave a talk in Houston, Texas, 
There was, as it's quoting him, there's absolutely nothing new in what you told me tonight. <laughs> Thank you for coming out. I appreciated that, right? Right. <laughs> Have a great evening, right? And, and where I made the mistake is what I should say and what I'm saying now is that certainly you will find today, as you will find in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, name your war. There is a bond, there is a connection that soldiers had with each other. But the nature of that bond, the essence of that bond, is very different. It's very different because, of course, it is shaped and informed and influenced by a specific time and a specific place. And ideas about masculinity, for instance, were a lot different during the Civil War than they are today. So, yes, there are parallels, without a doubt, but I beg and plead all of you not to go down that path where being a soldier is an experience that, in fact, it's timeless. It's just not the case at all, not the case at all. That's something we can debate and argue about. I'm willing to have that kind of conversation. <laughs> I think that'd be a good idea. And it's a good place to debate and argue is in a pub. Um, <laughs> Uh, for for a lot of you, uh, especially you uh, uh, younger students and such, we, we pass around memes all the time online. Uh, there's one with SpongeBob, and he's got his his old rainbow above him with a word, a keyword in it. And when I read this book, I thought of that. Weirdly enough, SpongeBob. Yeah, and I thought I thought I thought that word above SpongeBob would be pragmatism. Pragmatism. Yes. See, you got to think deeper than just SpongeBob. <laughs> <laughs> and that pragmatism is like thorough in here where these soldiers are overcoming so much because they go in thinking one thing and then come out thinking another. It, did you find that a lot in a lot of the primary source materials, that pragmatism is kind of a – not a universal thing, but something that is well-documented? They didn't – the soldiers themselves never used that word. But the one thing that I found time and time again is that men on both sides, they judged – the value of an idea, not on its uh, not on its intrinsic value, but on how um, practical it was. Would it get the job done? Let me give you a quick example. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. at the Battle of Fredericksburg was sick for the first time. His comrades in the 20th Massachusetts, composed mainly of Harvard boys, they went off, assaulted Reese Heights. Many of you, of course, know the story there. Those futile attacks against a strong, impregnable Confederate position. Holmes saw all of it, and in the wake of that, his father wrote and published a report about the superiority of the Union cause. And he, his father, believed that it was the superiority of the Northern cause that would ultimately win the day. Of course, Holmes, the son, Junior, he was appalled by this. He couldn't believe that his father thought that in the world of war, that somehow the superiority of an idea would carry the day and defeat a formidable army. And so he wrote his father. He was quite free in his opinions with his dad. And he chastised his father. And he reminded his father that, in fact, that if the northern people would simply sit back and believe that God was going to side with them because the Union cause and the cause for anti-slavery was morally superior, which I should note, Holmes did believe that. The junior, he thought all that, but he knew that wouldn't win the day. What would win the day is what he saw in Maurice Heights, another irony, right? This great futile assault, and in that, he saw two things. He saw the power of professionalism, men doing their duty as they had been trained, and then the second thing he saw, was this great display of heroism. And he just told his father, what we're waiting for here is a general, 
who can take that professionalism, who can take that bravery, who can channel it in a way that would allow them to be successful on the battlefield. So there is pragmatism, right? There is pragmatism at work. And that, again, is a break from scholars who have focused so much on the power of ideology, which these men certainly believed in on both sides. I don't want to diminish that. But at the end of the day, they judged an idea on its ability to secure military victory or to get them through this thing so that they could survive. One last quick example. Union soldiers who were Democrats in terms of their politics. 1864, many of those Democrats voted for class. There you go, old Abe, right? Oh, wait a minute, did they suddenly become Republican? Absolutely not. Why did they vote for Lincoln in the fall of 64? Because Lincoln offered the best chance for Union military victory, which of course then would save their butts and get them out of this war. They're pragmatists. They didn't change their philosophy. They didn't change their ideology. But in that moment, they, of course, adapted. And adaptility, being adaptive, that was critical. That was, and that was something they did write about. So pragmatism, yes, is a key part yeah. of, of this book. Why did you choose the, the letters in this book? What, what made you yeah. choose these guys? So and here's the thing. We'll get to these letters soon so we can all sort of have a conversation. I think it's a good question. I had no methodology. And let all my students hear that. No methodology. Here was my methodology. I wanted to follow soldiers over an extended period of time. I needed their letters to do that so I could do what I said at the very beginning. I wanted to show how these men could be many different things at different times. I had to have a body of letters that would do that. The second point, I needed letters in which these men opened themselves up, pulled back the curtains, and revealed their inner thoughts. And to my surprise, they were. They were much more emotionally open than what I ever could have imagined. Uh, I got sick during the process of writing this book. I got really sick. Put the book down for a while. I didn't think I'd ever get back to it. I came back to the book, and I came back to it with a very different perspective. Things that I read that I, I, I never saw before, but suddenly I did, and it's this. These men were emotionally open. They were open with their comrades, and they were open with their wives and their girlfriends. And emotionally open, not just in expressing their affection, but emotionally open about the fact, especially with their wives, that they saw their wives as partners partners in war, and these letters are extraordinarily poignant about why they are risking their lives in military service, how badly they want to see their children, how fearful they are that that will never happen again. John Partington, 24th Michigan Iron Brigade, shortly before the uh, Gettysburg campaign, he wrote his wife Sarah, and material culture is a big part of this book, and he writes his wife about a blue shirt. I believe that she, Sarah, made it for him. And he wrote to Sarah and he said that in the pocket of that blue shirt, he had a locket. And it was a locket, of course, with a picture of her. And <coughs> some hair from their little child. They had a baby. And a Bible as well. John Partington, before the war, had a drinking problem. John Partington, before the war, would come home after a night of drinking. He confessed to his wife that he wished he could take all those nights back. Who knows what transpired between them? maybe physical violence, maybe some kind of altercation, but he promised his wife that he had become a different man. Again, the emotional openness, all shocking to me. And in fact, he kept his promise. He stopped drinking, he picked up the Bible, and then when he wrote about this shirt and he wrote about the Bible and about the locket, his last line was, 
that she was always close by him, that she was right next to his heart, and that he promised not to try to get her hurt. July 1st, what we know as McPherson's Woods, one of Partington's comrades in a very, very brief note wrote, killed the Confederate who shot John Partington. That's all he wrote. And then in the next line, got drunk after the battle. My captain says I won't get promoted. I don't care. That's it. That's all he wrote, right? right? Now just imagine Sarah Partington back in Michigan with her child. They are absolute and utter financial duress. She's cut her hair to make money. She threatened to get a job outside of the house. And now she gets word that her husband's missing in action. She can only imagine that she was hoping that he was captured, right? But of course he was not. His body never identified, and I assume, in the National Cemetery and an unmarked grave. The point is this. The emotional openness of John Partington I found on Confederates and a person will give a little sneak preview, an advertisement, for Jim Brumall, who's coming in April. Is that yes. correct? Yes, he's so coming So Jim Brumall, who wrote a book that just came out called Private Confederates. Mm -hmm. And Private Confederates, I was deeply influenced by. My students here are going to meet Jim as well. He's going to come to my class, and we're going to have a conversation with him. Jim Brumall did a brilliant job of finding the emotional life of these men. And uh, like I said, something that I for whatever reason, wasn't as sensitive to as I should have been. But then after I got sick, I looked at these, all these letters, very different. Some of the most powerful ones we're going to read in just a moment from an illiterate soldier, which, of course, you're saying, okay, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, illiterate, illiterate, a man who dictated, dictated his letters to comrades who were barely literate themselves. So we'll take a look at that in a moment as well. I actually received a uh, question online from someone about literacy. And uh, he's, I have a follower on Instagram uh, who's uh, P. Reynolds, and he says, uh, were there higher numbers of illiterate soldiers on one side in particular? Or does it seem to be about the same? So I've never seen any hard numbers, but they certainly right. are higher on the Confederate side. Okay. And, and there's a great uh, website. It's all worth your time if you have even <laughs> a slight interest in the common soldier experience. It's called, ready? Private Voices. Letters from illiterate or semi-literate Confederate soldiers. And here's the best part of the site. All the letters are transcribed, which is just joyous. Mm. Right? You don't have to read that handwriting, yeah. which is just awful. Yeah. Private voices. It's a beautiful site. <laughs> it's beautifully done. And again, I, I just want to remind you all of this. When we all, we all love the battlefield here. We all have our favorite place. We all have our favorite stories. I want you all to ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself about the silences on this battlefield. And what I mean by that is I want you to ask yourself about what stories, what stories are commonly heard here? What stories have you told yourself and told others time and time again? And when you ask yourself that, you need to then ask yourself, what am I not hearing? What am I not saying? And I think one of the things that I have enjoyed so much about teaching here, and I don't want to say too many nice things about my students, we don't want their egos to get inflated. But teaching here at Gettysburg College is a good thing, right? There's Avery Lentz right over there. He's one of the first students I had. He's gone on to the Park Service. I can't tell you how many students I have who've gone on and worked as Pohankas. It's a good thing. But the best thing for me is my classroom is this battlefield. And when we're on the battlefield with my students, we have read letters, including one from an illiterate soldier who lost his brother here. His name's John Fudge. And I'm asking you, those stories, 
those stories of tragedy, those stories that have powerful implications that connect these men to the home front, those are the stories that often don't come to the top. And uh, Laura is right over here. Laura, raise your hand. Laura, in, in a public history class, and which I very much enjoyed working with her. And one of the, her projects was about, and you're going to have to say the, the title for me here as well, it's about uh, a, a slave ship captain who threw all of his human cargo overboard. What's the name of the rebellion that occurred? And so we've had some interesting conversations, and here's the point. How many of you have ever heard of that before? Probably not very many. And so, again, the issue remains what stories come to the surface and why are there certain silences? Those are the big and important questions that I ask myself now when I go on the battlefield. It has been prompted by writing this book, and I'm prompted by working with my students, right? right? Mm -hmm. Thinking and pressing upon them that we need to go to these places and we need to tell stories of individuals who were side by side, occupied the same place at the same historical moment, but wrote about these places, made meaning of these places in radically different ways. We don't need one grand narrative of Gettysburg. Uh, when we have Avery goes out on the battlefield, my other students have gone out on the battlefield, we need them to tell the American people a range of stories, right? Not one grand narrative. And this book and my students, it's been I think a good interaction, right, connection uh, uh, for me. Right. You brought up John Futch. Do you want to start with let's his yeah, letter in here? Yeah. I think he's towards the back. I think my students in the back are being deprived. Ben, all the way back there. Ben, do you have any of the, the letters back there, Ben? No letters, Ben? All right. Well, you'll just have to listen then. So let's go to, I'm, I'm sorry that I don't, I, I don't have these pages numbered. If you go to, it says John Fudge Papers, and it's July 19th, 1863. July 19th, it says camp near Bunker Hill. That's not Bunker Hill, Massachusetts. It's Bunker Hill. Where is it, class? West Virginia. Mm, well, now it is West Virginia. That's correct. Yeah, it's in the valley just north of Winchester. Yeah. John, did you want me to go ahead and read this? Sure. Now, I can, make a, I can make a really bad joke here at the expense of my undergraduates. I did it once before, and they, of course, chastised me for this. So this letter, of course, it is from an illiterate man. He is dictating this to a comrade in the third North Carolina. This comrade himself is barely literate. This is some tough writing, right? And it's tough to read. you got to be patient with me. But you would think, all the years I've had experience reading undergraduate writing, this should be pretty simple for me, don't you think? Wow. I'm sorry, yeah, I know, wow. I was cheap. Was it right? That's right. Was it right? <laughs> all right, here we go, y'all. So, dear wife, I take the pleasure of writing you a few lines which will inform you that I am not well at this time. I have a bad cold, and I am worn out, wearied out of marching. But we are stopped at this time, but we don't know how long we will stay there. Uh, there is some talk of us going back into Maryland, but I am in hopes that the war will soon end, for I'm tired of Maryland. I hope that we will not go back there. We marched through PV, being Pennsylvania. We had a hard fight there. We lost all of our boys nearly there. Charlie, Charlie is his brother. Charlie died near his side. Let me just quickly give you a break from this letter. Uh, they were on the ground loading their weapons when a Union mini ball or bullet struck Charlie in the head. When he turned, you can imagine there was blood streaming down Charlie's face. His mouth was moving. No words were coming out. You can only imagine the horror 
that John felt in that moment. John then dragged Charlie behind the lines. He stayed with Charlie throughout that night of July the 2nd, and then Charlie died on the morning of July the 3rd. Charlie got killed, and he suffered a great deal from his wound. He lived a night and a day after he was wounded. We've seen hard times there, but we got enough to eat there, meaning Pennsylvania. But we don't now. As to myself, I get enough, for I don't want nothing to eat hardly, for I'm almost sick all the time and half crazy. Everyone in this room has read a Civil War letter. I am quite confident <laughs> in that. And I'm also quite confident that none of you have ever read a soldier who's made such an omission, going half crazy. I never wanted to come home. I never wanted, excuse me, where am I in this letter? I never wanted to come home so bad in my life, but it is so that I can't come at this time. But if we come down south, I will try to come anyhow, for I want to come home so bad that I'm homesick. I want you to keep Charlie's pistol. Isn't that amazing to me? Right? His pistol. The last thing I probably would want to see is a weapon of war. Right? But there's this only, only physical reminder of his brother. Knowing what? Once he buries him in that rocky Pennsylvania soil, he's never going to see him again, right? And if I ever get it, I will keep it. Thomas and Robert Ramsey both got wounded, and they was left with the Yankees. And I hope that we will be lifted to come home without a wound, for I have seen so many wounded and died. I stayed with Charlie until he died. He never spoke after he was wounded until he died. I never was hurt so in my life. I would rather that it would have been myself as my opportunity instead of writing I'll close. Nothing more. I still remain your kind and affectionate husband, John Fudge. I won't read you the postscript here, but I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, can I ask him a question? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. This is what I asked. So this is where we take this, right? I said the battlefield's the best classroom you can imagine. We're all in agreement about that. We go behind the Confederate Maryland Monument on Culp's Hill. That's not so far where John and Charlie Fudge <laughs> fought on July the 2nd. Many of you who have gone behind that monument, there is the remains of what many believe is a Confederate burial pit. It's hard to say, but of course that's certainly plausible. We stand around that pit and we read this letter and the question I pose to them, which I will now pose to you, is this a political letter? And let it be a free for all, speak freely. Is this a political letter? Do they have a mic? Did you say they I have a mic? I have a mic here for them, yeah, yes. You can let them talk. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Yes. I mean, of course, you're asking because you have an opinion. Um, but, <laughs> I do have um, an opinion. <laughs> but, I mean, this goes back to a few things that, um, first of all, I'm an art history major, so we talked about conceptual art history today. Mm -hmm. right. And there are things that, you know, don't seem political on the surface. But, I, I mean, of course there are always things that come up underneath everything underneath the emotions that are tied deeply to how people interact with the political sphere around them. Because, I mean, there are things that, I mean, there are things that function every day in your life that are part of the political sphere. Um, so it's really hard to say that this isn't political because first of all, he's engaged in the war, he's engaged mm. in the act of politics, um, extended to other means, as right. Clausewitz says. Um, and and yeah. go, go Gettysburg <laughs> Education. I may be an art history studio art double major, but I am a public history minor. So uh, that was always a plus of my education here. Um, but I mean, I think it's hard to say whether or not something is intended to be political um, or whether it's 
unintentionally political, whether it is internally political. Um, and that's, I think, a little bit more what you're getting at than the direct question, is this a political letter? So. Keep, keep it going. Thank you, Laura. That's <laughs> a great perspective. Can I have a counter perspective? Oh, let's keep going. Yeah. Um, also, <laughs> based on how, like, it was, I think it was actually mentioned this morning in class, usually when you say something like this, you don't necessarily believe it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a really Or if you do, you uh, you give the opportunity for us to try and challenge it just to see absolutely. how we think. Uh, absolutely. So I'll just quickly, and then you, I'll let you continue. I'll just say this, which I have not told the class yet. This is my goal for every class at Gettysburg College. It's been my goal for every class I've ever taught. I want you to leave my class at the end of the day, at the end of the semester, confused. That's what I want. I'm absolutely serious. I want you to be confused. If you leave my class thinking you've got all the answers and you've got the truth, I've done what? I've done you an injustice, have I not? Leaving confused. That's my motto. I like it. Leave confused. I like it. Leave confused. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Go for well, it. Well, anyway, though, uh, I, it just made me, what Laura, Laura was saying, uh, it just made me think that I could see it actually on both ways, whether it be political or not political, uh, because like the article we read about Oates the other morning. Uh, that was obviously very political and trying to elicit a certain response in the people. And this letter could do a similar type of uh, desire to elicit a certain response, but the writer may not have initially intended that because it is a letter to his wife, but it could easily be taken that way if it had been published in like a paper or something. Good, excellent, well said. Yeah. Keep going. Anybody, anybody? Anybody else? Oh, look, I think anybody else. Oh, oh. There. we have an alarm. Let's here. not forget the kids oh, in the back here there. Comes the, yeah. Yeah. Uh oh. I don't want to be the guy. Um, well, just you know, whether or not this letter is political or not, I do remember spending many, many weeks reading John Futch um, <laughs> in and out of class. <laughs> um, so this is really awesome. A lot of the nostalgia is coming back. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but I guess when you ask us if this is a political letter or not, um, you know, kind of what's already been said, I'm just going to piggyback on that. Absolutely, you can take stances from both sides of this. And you can see how, yeah, this is a simple letter of a guy who's really just airing his emotions through a letter to his wife. Um, you might not say that there's a lot of, you know, politics in that. And, of course, you kind of, if you... I, for me, at least, it's easier to look at this as a political letter just knowing from what I know already about a lot of standard Confederate soldiers. A lot of them are from the poor yeomanry, a lot of them. Obviously, John Futch is not very uh, illiterate, or he's not very literate, um, so he's not very well educated either. And it's not his fault. It's just what was you know presented to him, what was offered to him as a Southern citizen. And there's a point here where he's claiming, like, I don't want to go back across, I don't want to go back to Maryland, I don't want to go back north. Um, you know, it's kind of almost like he's reflecting on, he's just tired. He's tired of the war continuing. And I mean, especially for him, and a lot of soldiers in his situation, many of them by this time are, they're not idiots. They may not be the most, you know, may not be the brightest bulbs in the bunch, but they're not idiots. They can clearly understand that this is, a conflict that is going to benefit a certain group of people back home, maybe not themselves. And so here he is in enemy territory, and he's just lost his brother. That's a pretty high price to pay for a cause that he may or may not believe in. He doesn't really make that apparent in this letter at all. 
but there is a high price there. So in a way, kind of how it's already been said, he may not have meant it to be political, but knowing from what we know now about the standard Confederate soldier, it's almost to say that, yeah, this is almost anti-war. Um, and it's hard not to be after losing a family member right next to you. Um, and that's just kind of how I take that. Now, that's just my interpretation, so it is up for anyone else to interpret and, and, it differently. Yes, that's what keeps us in business, right? We're like yeah. lawyers. Yeah, I hate to yeah. acknowledge <laughs> that, especially on, on air here, but we are like yeah. lawyers, and that's <laughs> interpretation Objection. Is, our, is our game, right? Uh, uh, does anyone else say anything else? I, I'll just say yeah. something about what Avery's yeah. point. Is someone going to make the case here that this is just a letter of a homesick soldier who's maybe even suffering some kind of trauma? I mean, is this what we would call as PTSD? Does <laughs> anyone read that into it? Uh, I will. Okay, yeah, go to it. Yeah, yeah, please do. Did you want to talk? Yeah. Um, first of all, I think this book's a fabulous idea. If you ask people to m name a soldier on this battlefield that's not an officer, you come up with Sergeant Ben Crippens, and you, people can't come up with number two or three or four names. So that's starting right there. That's a political statement. If there's a continuum of something politi being political and something being not political at all, I think this is more on the side of not being political. Um, I think it's a lot about what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that his brother died for a cause. Uh, he does. And what regiment is he with? Third North Carolina. Third North Carolina, right? Um, he talks about food. He talks about being tired. He talks about we're stopped, but I have no control about whether we're going to be marching again or not. I am just a he says, I want to go home, but I can't. So that's not a political statement. I think he's just in the moment accepting his fate. A person he can talk to maybe here is his wife. He can say, it's horrible. It's horrible. I have nothing to remember my brother by except an object. Okay, I'm hungry. I'm not hungry. It's food. I'm tired. I think anything about the... I'd like to know what he thought with the day he signed up for the Army and what he thinks now. Under the threat of conscription. That's very well said, John. Is it possible for us to go all the way to the back here with my students, who we've had a long talk. Let's see how they respond to John. I hope you could hear John back there. But I'd like for my students, someone step up to the plate here. Yeah, You want to do it? I, just, I want to talk about the idea about John Futch and Confederate manliness. We have been going through, and, and John here, John, you're going to lose about half of your listeners right now. Ready? Here we go. Because we use the word discourse, right? You've just lost half your people. Uh -oh, right, here we done. Go. Right. And, and we're talking about an, an ugly. Have a good evening, everybody. And it's an ugly academic <laughs> word. I, I tell my students, I tell my public historians, don't you dare ever use that word discourse when you talk to a general audience, right? You don't do that. But, but, I want. My students back here, John, you gave a really nice, I think, assessment. You can, you can blow my cover if you want. Well, what, to your battlefield guide? Down guide yeah. yeah, well, that's not cover. We're, we're okay <laughs> with gods. We're all right with them. Right? Who wants to go? What's, uh, yeah, tell me about this letter here. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Do it. Yeah. He's one of my students. I agree that uh, it wasn't consciously a political ideology or anything like that uh, uh, when he wrote the letter, but... Yeah, he wanted to go home. He wanted the, he wanted out. But your wants and desires are still a political ideology within themselves. Uh, uh, I mean, 
morally speaking, they're not equal, but uh, wanting uh, to own slaves, even if you don't, is still uh, a uh, political belief, uh, the same way that not wanting to fight in a war is. Okay, so earlier in class today, we had actually talked about honor, and coincidentally, it had been about North Carolinians who were deserting after the Battle of Gettysburg. So I think the discourse pertinent to this specific letter has to do with Southern honor, particularly that of familiar relations, in the sense that he said that he you know, he stayed with Charlie up until Charlie had passed. You know, this man is tired, he is wary, he's sick, he's half crazy, but I'm still defending my family, I'm still writing my wife, and that, I think, is the particular discourse involved with this letter. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else from the class? In the back here, want to come on? Step up here. Hey, here's the thing, I'm just going to quickly, well, no, I won't say it, they should just talk, I don't need to talk. <laughs> you hear enough of me. Anybody back there? We have someone back there. Are you serious? Are they holding out back there? One of the things you had mentioned earlier was being careful about trying to read into things. Right. I think trying to make this political is reading into things. What I see here on the surface is pure pain. He, he, he is tired. He watched his brother die. He, he's letting his heart out to his wife about how he feels. He just wants to get home to her and her family. And whether that means we won or we lost, that's anybody's guess. You're reading into what it is. To me, it's strictly raw emotion. You have to feel for this person that's feeling this way. And to, to have your brother die next to you and even be able to write a letter is amazing in and of itself. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I don't think he was worried about the outcome. I think he didn't want to go back to Maryland because he didn't want his butt kicked again. <laughs> I agree. You know, I, I think that that could be part of it because nothing good happened to them in Maryland. So I think it's, it's raw emotion more than anything. So, of course, you know, the teachers always supposedly have the answer. I'm not really giving you the answer, but I would like to say what happened to John Fudge. I suspect you're all curious. Uh, if you've not, maybe I shouldn't. Look, uh, people who really know how to promote their books, they don't want. Uh, this is a teaser. Go read the book. Don't, I won't do that. I hate that. Academic conferences, it happens all the time. You ask an academic a question, and they'll say, you really need to read my book. No. You really need to answer my question. That's, that's, <laughs> that's why right. I'm asking. I don't want to read your book. All right. So that's here we right. go. Ready? John Futch. So John Futch, uh, end of August with 11 other men in the middle of the night, took their muskets, got all some extra cartridges, put it in their cartridge boxes, and slipped away from camp. They made it about 50 miles south, of course, with the intent of getting back to Carolina. They got to the James River. They were intercepted by a Confederate patrol. I, the men tried to surrender. It Peers, but a gun battle erupted, and the officer of the arresting party, Richard Mallett, shot in the chest, killed instantly. Futch and his comrades, one escaped, one was killed. Uh, so you got 10 men. They're captured and they're sent to Richmond to a place called Castle Thunder. Castle Thunder is essentially for political prisoners. They're there for a week. We have no idea if there was a trial. I suspect there was not. There's a desertion, of course, and a killing of the officer. They are then put on a train and sent back to their camp. Their camp was at 
Montpelier, which, of course, the home of class? James Madison, that's right. Sent back to James Madison on, uh, on a Friday evening, I believe, after they got back from, uh, from Richmond. They are informed of the verdict. They are informed that they will be executed. They are not allowed to have any communication with their comrades, nor, of course, to have any final words of any sort in terms of writing to their loved ones. That very next day, Johnson's division, the very division that fought at Culp's Hill on July 2nd and July 3rd, they are formed up in that what, three-sided or hollow square. Uh, they are out there for more than a half hour waiting and waiting. They know, of course, what is going to come when they hear the Dead March play. The Dead March, of course, is then followed by Futch and his comrades. And they are marched in front of the square, and then they are halted in front of what look like ten small crosses, right? And they are then put down on their knees. They are tied to those crosses. They are blindfolded, but I should have added before that occurred, the preacher came out and spoke to each man. We have no idea what transpired between the minister and those soldiers that condemned. And then they walked away, and there's this awful silence, right? This awful silence waiting for these execution or firing squads to approach the scene. And during that silence, a few of the men, the condemned, cried out. One yelled out for his mother, right? Another man yelled out, please save me. Who knows who said that? Maybe it was John Futch. But we can only imagine what was going through Futch's mind, right? Was he thinking about Charlie, his last moments with him? Was he thinking about his wife and his child that he'd never see again? Or was he so overtaken by terror that he couldn't think of anything at all? And then the firing squads approached. And then the command, the command that all these men had heard countless times on the battlefield. Ready, aim, fire. Volley unleashed. More than 100 shots, right? Each firing squad had 10 soldiers. When the smoke cleared... Two of the condemned, still alive. Reserve companies were rushed to the scene. Of course, unleashed another volley, finished the job. But this scene was not over. This act not completed because this execution, it's what? It's for the living. It's for the living. And now Johnson's division, this division that had witnessed what? Five to seven hours of fighting on July the 3rd, at least, yeah, right? After enduring all that, they're then forced to march by the condemned at slow time. Did this execution, did it curtail desertion? It doesn't appear. It did in the third North Carolina. It continued. But here is the tragedy. And it's the tragedy that was carried out by Richmond newspaper editors. They demonized these men, demonized these deserters as criminals, as criminals who had forever disgraced their family's name, who had dishonored them. And who, of course, is blamed for this act of desertion? It is, class? Who do you think? Who's blamed for this? Who? No, not much, no. The women. The women on the home front, they're at fault. Because what were they doing? They're sending letters to their loved ones in the army saying, come home, save us. We can't take care of our farms. That's the thrust of the message and what's left out. And this is what the tragedy is. What's left out in the newspapers? One, none of these men are mentioned by name. They have no names. They are depicted as criminals. Criminals, oh, I don't know, had no military record. John Futch fought at Chancellorsville. No mention that John Futch had lost his brother at Culp's Hill. 
No mention that John Futch's family was in a half-starving condition outside of Wilmington, North Carolina. No mention that the logistical breakdown that R.E. Lee was responsible for had left his men in a half-starving condition. No mention of the debacle here at Gettysburg. None of that context. It is all purposely removed from this dramatic moment. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that Futch and his comrades shouldn't have been executed. Of course, they needed to be. It had to be done. But here is the point we all need to remind ourselves when we go to the battlefield. Without this letter in your hand right now, you would know nothing about John Futch. You wouldn't even know his name. And if you picked up the newspapers, as I did, and read just about the execution, I would only get the perspective of the Confederate ruling class. This is a find like no other because it gives voice to the people that we need to hear more of when we study the Civil War. So, that's your decision whether you think it's political or not. But to my students in the back, and I want, I want them to hear this. To my students in the back, you did nicely here for me. I'm proud. Laura, way to step up as you always did. She always was fantastic. I just want to have to brag on Laura. I had an optional oral defense. If your class participation score wasn't great, I said, you know what, come on in. We'll do a, she's like at the top of the class for class participation. And who comes in for oral defense? Laura does. Like she's embarrassed. And I said, I would have been disappointed in you if you didn't do this. And uh, of course, uh, she did. Hey, you all in the back here, my students, I'm telling you what's so daring about this letter is this letter, it goes against what John Futch and his comrades have been hearing day in and day out. If he was a true Confederate patriot, this letter would have said, Charlie died for what? He died for the Southern cause. That is a conscious decision not to do that. When, when Charlie says, I don't want to go back into Pennsylvania and Maryland, you're absolutely right. He doesn't want to get shot again. But that again is, is that what Robert E. Lee wants his men to be writing? Absolutely not. So you all are correct. Everyone is right because, of course, we know that's the way it is in higher education now. <laughs> Everyone has to be right. Everyone gets a star. You get a star. Laurie gets a star. How about a free beer for everyone? John, can you handle that? I, I can't. Oh, we can't that quite one, do that uh, at all, right? Yeah, I wish I could. But I, I can't wish we could that. do it as well. So, as you can imagine, I feel pretty passionate about this. People make fun of me all the time because I just all I do they say that I just sort of have this John Fudge stick. I don't. I a little bit resent that. I was over at the Rosewood. Woods by Devil's Den, John Fletcher again, probably Culp's Hill. It's cold, man. It's last Friday. It's freezing out there, and I'm taking some people around to show them the Gardner photographs. And I don't even know who it was. I hope it's not someone here. It was cold, right? He's wrapped up. I could tell he was an older man. I couldn't recognize him, and he said he yelled at me, Pete, why are you down here? John Futch didn't fight here. You got to go up to Culp's Hill. <laughs> nice. nice. Wonderful. I yeah. like that. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Don't you take uh, students out on the battlefield with these letters? Or yeah, you have we taken do it all the time, out, And that, yeah. that brings that out, too. It, uh, it, yeah, you it, can it, see that ground. Yeah, absolutely. You can see the ground. It's really, uh, you know, and I, again, this is another thing. Maybe we should just have some questions about this. And we've right. got John up here who's already disclosed that he's a battlefield guide, which, you know, hey, we, the battlefield guides come to our conference, which I hope we get a chance to talk about. Right, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, but, I mean, it's... Uh, you know, how do we interpret this battlefield? And there's so many ways to go at it, and I'm open to all those approaches. I mean, I like, you know, old-fashioned tactical history, but I will say, for me now, you know, those movements are important, and I can try to do my best to remember those kinds of things. They don't stick like they once did. But I know what I always want to do is I want to have conversations about why their deaths on both sides, how men made and women made meaning of it at the time, 
and of course, long after the war. I think those conversations can take place. And the last thing that I'll say is that if you all are reading, leading family and friends around the battlefield, just for a moment, say, you know, you're at Pickett and Pettigrew's Charge. You're in front of the Virginia Monument. Ask your group, ask your friends, ask your family to not look towards Cemetery Ridge and the Copse of Trees. Instead, have them turn around. Have them for a moment imagine what it would have looked like behind the lines. What would they have seen? Not just the walking wounded, not just men, of course, who for whatever reason couldn't hold up under fire. But they'd also see on the Confederate side, class, a lot of enslaved people. A lot of enslaved people. So there are so many different angles. And just remind yourself this. This battlefield, as much as we all adore it, it is a deceptive place. It deceives you into wanting to see this battle in the most heroic terms possible. And I want to be clear about this. We should in no way diminish that sacrifice. And we need to be careful that if we only want to tell stories that have, like John Futch, and this is some tough stuff, right? It's, it's tough. If that's all you want to tell people, I think we might lose a lot of interest in the Civil War. We need the Joshua Chamberlains. I know that's not possible, popular anymore. I still love John. I mean, yes, I love Joshua Chamberlain. He's awesome. He deserves <laughs> to be studied. He is. And, well, of course, and this is a tired line, but it is true. Find me another academic who's done something practical in this world. Right? <laughs> he is our hero, right? I want wow. So I have two goals in life. Can I get my two goals that I know that I've made it? Yeah. So the first, this is definitely not going to happen. I'd love to be a bobblehead doll, right? <laughs> that would be awesome. Like bobblehead dolls of historians. That's one goal. But my real goal and my class, see this? I asked my students today. I gave them last year this great anecdote from The Simpsons. I do my best to culturally relate. It doesn't work. <laughs> Hell, none of them remembered it. So do you all remember this? What did I say I wanted? What's my life dream from last year? Do you remember? No, why do I divulge? Why do I open up to my students? I don't even remember. I want to be a term, right? A term. A you know, term. When in history class, you put terms on the, you ask your students, you need to know this person because this person did something. You know you've made it when, when you become a term. That's I want to become a term. It's not asking for too much. And you got all me about SpongeBob. And I don't know about, about SpongeBob. I need, yeah, <laughs> see, I, I just connected you. I thought I saw a hand or somebody. Yeah. Oh, would you? We have a yeah. microphone? Yeah, let me get that back here. Dr. Carmichael. Pete, it's Pete. It's Pete, please. I'm sorry. I mentioned a few minutes ago. It's not on. That's good, but he's pretty loud. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, Pete, one of your students mentioned about the Southern honor yeah, no. just a few minutes ago, no. and you just mentioned how the Richmond newspapers dishonored Southern women. It seems a little bit contradictory, does it not? If I said they dishonored Southern women, then I misspoke. What they did is they castigated them and blamed them for desertion. And I think that they were in part correct because, of course, these letters which again I would read as highly political in asking, or I should say demanding in many cases, that their men abandon the ranks and to come home. These women recognized and understood that great risk that they were asking of their husbands. Again, I would consider that to be a highly political act. Uh, I would, now the dishonor that the press was uh, uh, making was that these men had dishonored their families forever by desertion. And that's what the students in part were referring to because these men like Fudge who had left the ranks, that that was going to tarnish not just their legacy but their family's legacy. But there's a happy ending to this story. 
Ready? So I gave a talk in Wilmington, North Carolina, so not far from New Hanover County where John Futch resided. And right before the talk, who came up but two direct descendants of John Futch. They were on the uncle side, right? It was awesome. And I was really moved. We got pictures. It was really cool. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll be in touch. I gave them my card and... I've never heard from them. They're just driving me nuts. There's not a day that has a pass. I thought, what did I do? And so uh, I, 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 I stalked this guy. I, find, I found him on the internet. Yeah, no, I found him. I wrote him. It wasn't a pathetic, I mean, it was mildly pathetic. But I just said, you know, I'd really like for you to get in contact because he knew a lot more about the family. But here's my point. They told me that on John Futch's direct line, because remember he had a kid, that I think his great, great grandson was named John Futch, <laughs> which says everything, does it not? Does it not say that that family, despite, of course, the haranguing of the Richmond press, they thought that what their ancestor had done was noble and was honorable and was, of course, the right political choice. Maybe he's watching now and he will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got some great family stuff that yeah. I really would like to know more about the family. Always more. That, always something. I hope he is watching. Uh, but I want to give a quick plug to the Civil oh, War Conference sure. in the summer. Uh, Pete graciously invited me to live stream from the Civil War Institute uh, Summer Conference this year, and I want to allow you to uh, – you know, well, not allow you. I'd love for you to be able yeah, to sure. speak about that yeah. a little bit, about what the, the conference entails. So it's so the first thing about what John's doing here. I mean, we'll get a chance to applaud for him in just a moment. No, it will be no, for him, right? No. But look, you know what? John has done – what I think is so important, and that is bringing history and connecting to a wide range of audiences. We all believe in it. This is proof that this so-called divide between academics and so-called public historians, there is no divide. Anybody who puts that forth, they're living in another age. It's just not there. My best colleagues that I have, who I enjoy connecting with, people like John, right? We all share this together. We're all, of course, students of the past. So John, what you're doing on so many fronts, and just thrilled to have you uh, this summer at the Civil War Institute, uh, where we have a number of folks. You have options, and I will be brief about this because I don't want to come across as a salesman, but that's exactly what I'm trying to do <laughs> here. So we have a weekend option only. You can hear Gary Gallagher, Ed Ayers, Steve Barry. All these people come in. Many of you know our format. We have lectures. We have small group discussions. And on Saturday night, we even have some battlefield tours. Go look at it online. And if you're living here in Gettysburg, you know what's the best thing about that? You don't have to go to Gettysburg College, and all the students here who are still here can attest to this. You don't want to sleep in the dorms, do you? Absolutely not. Unless Ron, Ron doesn't. Ron's right over here. Ron comes to CWI all the time. He's in town, so he doesn't have to endure the uh, the plastic sheets. We tell the attendees, bring your own sheets, right? These plastic sheets and these soft beds. I'm not doing a good job of selling the conference, am I? But the point is, most of you are local, which means you can do what? You can just come on the weekend, or you can do the whole package. We have battlefield tours all day on Monday and Tuesday. I would really uh, enjoy having you all there. It's a great experience. and thrilled that John is going to be there. John is going to speak to our speakers after they're done. Right. And, uh, and it's just a, I don't know, it's kind of like a Civil War Woodstock. Yeah. Of sorts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Without the nudity. And, yeah. <laughs> Without the nudity and, and rock music. So I guess that's not <laughs> right, like Woodstock right. at all, yeah. which is probably a good thing because yeah. I <laughs> like to keep my job. We have a question. Yes. So yes, the question is: Does PCN film it? Yes, and so does C-SPAN three. And of course, if you have insomnia, 
you probably have seen us on C-SPAN 3. <laughs> yeah. But if you don't have insomnia, yeah. So they film it all, but they don't get all the good stuff, right? They don't get what we call the breakout sessions where you can, this sounds pretty exciting. Hold your, hold on, edge of your seat here, ready? You can have dinner with one of the speakers, with a handful of other people, and you usually have a discussion about a document of sorts. It's laid back. I mean, look, this appeals to all levels of interest and of knowledge. And so that's a component that's not on PCN. The Battlefield Tours that we do aren't on PCN, but they do a lot of Battlefield Tours as well. So the C-SPAN thing, I can't tell you. I've been speaking a lot across the country, and a lot of people obviously have insomnia because a lot of people watch, to my surprise, C-SPAN, which is great. Uh, but of course, I'd love to have them there because I'm kind of old-fashioned, right? I, I think that face-to-face -face interaction is a pretty good thing, and uh, and that's another great thing that John is doing here, right? He's still using the social media, but you're bringing people together to have these important conversations. And God knows we need them more than ever now, and we need them the way that John's doing it because there's no political nonsense. You're just doing history here. Now, I'm telling you, there are political implications to all this. Looking at Laura over here. That's <laughs> undeniable. That's undeniable. And if this crowd were to break up and we were to have beers, I'd be more than happy to go in that direction. Mm. But not here and not mm. in my classroom. We don't want to pollute that with politics. That's right. And, and, and Pete was kind enough to invite me to do some uh, live stream interviews, as he said, with the speakers. I'm yeah. going to be kind of like the after party. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, it's kind of like Between Two Ferns, but with like bookends Between instead. Between Two Ferns, that's, that's uh, just a, that's a brilliant show. It is. Yeah, I want to be half that good. He is outstanding. Um, Wait, what gonna, was the other thing you wanted that. to do? Remember you wanted to do College Day? Remember like the... Oh, the yeah. I said that if we could get an open area at the CWI conference, I wanted to have students come out with posters like they do on College Game Day. Right, and be in the background, and the, you know, best poster gets something. I don't, I don't know, but you I know, just make it, make it fun and exciting. So, yeah, yeah what, no, what the, what the heck? So, yeah. But yeah. Uh, any more questions uh, for Pete this evening? I'm, I'm sure uh, we have a few that are probably outliers. His, his students won't speak up because they see him every day. <laughs> they see enough of me, and they, and they come at eight thirty in the morning. Oh, eight thirty, and they're all there. And they Ooh. did. They were great this morning. Yes. Oh. Oh. We have one more. Yes. She's got a great shirt I mean, on too. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. No, I got the tattooed historian oh, shirt. Oh, look at that. I like that. Yeah. Um, no, I mean I don't see D Dr. Carmichael. I don't see you at eight thirty in the morning anymore. So of course I miss you. Yes. Um, but no, my question is more based upon how do you read um, primary material like this, especially letters. Um, when you know there is this level of mediation that occurs mm. between the individual's thoughts and what they're writing down, mm. what they're sharing, yeah. uh, because I mean, a lot of the discourse on letter writing mm. basically tells us that you can't read them all exactly as mm. they are. You have mm. to understand some of the cultural dichotomies that are happening um, and and the internal monologues yeah. Yeah. that are behind the words. Right. Um, so, how do you, as a scholar, approach letters like? those from John Funch. So, Laura, first I'm going to say that I really feel like you've wasted your four years at Gettysburg College because <laughs> you should not have been art history. You should have been history. We, there still is time, and I know how much you love school. Four more years here would not bother you, would it? <laughs> it would not. I knew it would not. So I'll just give you a quick example. And I think that her question is, that, could, that is a question that is so sophisticated it's so difficult that I think most civil historians have avoided it. And I'd like to believe that I hit it head on. And I'll give you a specific on how I dealt with it, and that is to understand the cultural world in which people inhabited. And there are many 
cultural worlds and to understand those filters through which historical actors take in that world, right? And those uh, events that they experience, they are filtered through and they are shaped and they are influenced by assumptions about race and about gender and about class. And then the act of writing in the depiction, you got to think about who's receiving that letter. So there are so many factors. And I think many of you who are, let's just say, more comfortable with just, hey, you read a letter and that's what it says. What I've just described to you is probably like, man, what? You're just jumping off a cliff here, right? You have no evidence and no proof. But here, I'm going to give you a quick example. July 30th, 1864, the Battle of the Crater. Many of you know the story, right? Union soldiers below a mine under Confederate lines. Union attack in which USCT, or African-American soldiers, were used. And you probably know as well that those USCT soldiers performed, I think, very well, especially considering that many of their white officers were drunk and in bomb proofs, right? The Confederates launched a counterattack, and in that counterattack, it was a savage one. These Confederates were already enraged that the mine had been exploded. They are, of course, enraged by seeing black soldiers. And in many instances, they refused to show quarter, murdered them, killed them, cold blood. And there was a letter from a Confederate artillerist, from a graduate from the University of Virginia. And he watched the entire scene. He's highly educated. He is deeply religious. His name is Willie Pegro. And in watching this scene, let me just ask you all this. You're there. You're transported back in time. You see these black soldiers. You see them charged to the front. They're officers, many of them not with them. They see Confederate soldiers yelling, no quarter, right? And many of the blacks in response were yelling what? Remember Fort Pillow, the massacre of black USCTs by Nathan Bedford Forrest. You witness it. You see it. And a reporter comes to you and says, do you think USCT soldiers knew what they were fighting for. Was there a higher cause at stake? And your answer would be what class? Absolutely, right? You're killing right here, right? You are killing to become a citizen of the United States. You're wearing the blue suit. You're shouldering a musket. Do you need any more proof? Do you need any more evidence of the political action of these men, that they understood the war and the stakes of it? We're all in agreement of it, correct? Willie Pegram wrote a letter back to his family, to his daughter, excuse me, to his sister, Jenny. Oh, well, there's important, right? His younger sister is reading this letter. Suddenly, there's no blood. There is no blood in the description. There's no blood. There's no screaming. There's no yelling. There's not any of the heinous sounds of battle. Gone. Oh, wait. What about these black troops? How does he handle that? He said that, the men murdered them. He used that, and he even wrote, it seems cruel. It seems cruel to murder them, but they were just in doing so. Not shocked. I'm not shocked. As a member of a slave society, man, the gain, the stakes of the game are extraordinarily high. But what I'm shocked by and what you should be shocked by, that from that moment that Willie Pegram didn't write his sister and say, wait a minute, we maybe got something wrong here. Black men are men after all. But they didn't all run. That's what we thought they would do, but they didn't do that. They proved their mettle. Now, they're fighting for their freedom, and you'd at least expect Pegram to write, the damn abolitionists are forcing them to do this. He doesn't even give them that much credit. There. There's the power of, of that ugly word, the word of the day discourse, right? <laughs> it is discourse, it is a racial discourse, it is how Pegram saw the world. I am not condemning him for that. I don't wag my finger at the past. I don't get any of that that's going on today. I, 
absolutely do not understand it. We can all agree that slavery was an absolutely brutal system. We can all agree that what happened at the crater to those black soldiers was a war crime that went unpublished. But the point to us is what? Why didn't he see it as a war crime? Pegram. Why didn't he see that black soldiers were engaging in political action? Because you've got to understand the cultural world in which they inhabited. You've got to understand how discourse, when facts don't fit discourse, discourse wins nine times out of ten. That's why Confederates who left Gettysburg here, including Stephen Dotson Ramster from North Carolina, I'm picking on North Carolinians here, he was an officer. He wrote on July the 5th to his wife that all was well in the Army of Northern Virginia. Really? Where were you? Everything's <laughs> falling apart, right? Let's see you. Uh, that's why you can't read these letters this way. And it's tough. I never did that. I never did that into this book. And I will just begin, last point. So my advisor, Gary Gallagher, is one of the editors here. And some people have said that I should not be talking about him in this way. He is like a father to me. And to this day, he remains that close, intellectually as well as just on a personal level. He does not agree at all how I handle the sources. He does not like my book. <laughs> At all. Maybe a little bit. Maybe in a weak moment, he'll give it maybe a C, right? Yeah. But here is the, again, what I always like to try to be with my students. And to his credit, right, he let me reach my own interpretations. He fought me along the way, and it's a better book for it. It's a better book for it. But it's a different way, it is a generational thing, of approaching sources. He would say, read them, stack up the evidence, and that's what you go with. And I say to him, no. Read them and dig underneath the words. That's what Laura was suggesting as well. Mm. Uh, that's what I think. They did. It's a two different approaches, right? And they both have value. Because remember, everybody is right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Pete, so much for, for being with us this evening. Thank you all for being here. This has been fantastic. Yes. Let's give it up for Pete. <laughs> thank you for the shout out as well. Appreciate yeah, no, wow. John, it's been great. It's uh, wonderful working with you. Uh, next month, we're, uh, we're covering some Women's History next month, nice. Women's History Month. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, Stephanie Seal Walters, who, if you listen to my podcast, she was on my podcast a couple weeks ago. Uh, she will be here discussing loyalist women in America during the Revolution. Uh, so that should be an interesting topic. And then April, uh, Dr. Sure. James Broomall will be here uh, speaking about his new book. So it's going to be an action-packed spring. Yeah, uh, but thank you all for crowding yeah. in here and and uh, yeah, and so having some drinks. Hopefully, yes. and, hopefully and you have some more before you leave. And thank my, and really my well. students all the way back there. Thank you, yeah. students, for coming. That was very nice. Thanks, of you all. students. Thank you Thanks for coming. Yeah, that's very nice. Thank you all for coming. Yeah.